lot of tricks were pulled in a book I read. Only man I know that got up from the dead. A lot of people living by the words that he said. I'm checking out the show with a glassy eye, looking at the sun dancing through the sky. Did he come by UFO? Think he'll ever come again a different way, and maybe he has come and gone while I was away. Too much goodness is a sin today. I'm checking out the show with a glassy eye, looking at the sun dancing through the sky. Did he come? Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> okay, yeah, so uh, he's talking about Blue Beam Jesus, folks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like. Pretty much, but or, he yeah, like, was, Jesus was a believer, an basically. And yeah, he was wondering if Jesus was like a, a sort of UFO messiah. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yep, the ending of that like. song is also, you know, there is something happening that isn't too clear, just a little different than in previous years. I think that happiness is getting very near. It's interesting because there's sort of a, a chiasm between these two verses where the first one was, you know, almost while I wasn't paying attention, Jesus came and left. And now, like, we're in hell or something, you know, like too much goes into the sin today. Uh, you know, maybe he has come and gone while I was away, you know. But also, then in the end, I think it's like, well, maybe a second coming is imminent. Uh, so just a lot of confusion. But yeah, it's a I mean, it's a very good song. Um, but yep, you can yep. see this is the most explicit in that album. I think the most explicit uh, also, with this idea, uh, which fascinated him. Yeah. Yes. Also, what jumps out at me immediately when he says there is something happening that isn't too clear, just a little different than in previous years. That seems to be a pretty direct reference to Buffalo Springfield's For What It's Worth, which is like kind of the like probably the most like iconic lyrics in the song besides the chorus. You know, there's mm-hmm. something happened in here, you know, which is like it became kind of the one of the unofficial anthems of like the 60s hippie sort of protest mm-hmm movement and stuff even though the lyrics like deeper in that song are like ambiguous and weird like like singing songs and they're carrying signs mostly say hooray for our side and like what like wait they're this is they're actually pro-vietnam like i don't know (laughs) it's very it's like very uh yeah i think stephen stills uh did that you know did that one and i don't know so yeah i don't know what he's referencing there it kind of like you know just a little different than in previous years like is he referencing that laurel canyon first wave in you know 1967 when that song came out and it's there there's still something happening that's not too clear i would agree with that as somebody yeah, who's listening to laurel canyon there something was something happening on. there yeah, and what was happening is not too clear until we can figure out what's going on uh, we need to shut down lookout mountain air yeah, force base until we can even figure in, out what's going on yeah exactly yeah. um i think that it definitely is uh, a reference and a response to that uh it, when, when he says, uh, you know, I think that, well, I think maybe it's a broader thing about, like, the climate of the times, uh, kind of with a messianic mm-hmm. pose to it, but I, or, you know, uh, messianic speculation uh, around it, but, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, the, you know, yeah. The, the, the images of man were about to change. Yeah, and, the images uh, of man are changing, right, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, there's a there's a and also like the 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 sonic vibe of the UFO album is yeah. something that really jumps out at people. And th- this album was almost lost because it was released. Okay, so like one of the many things that I think that maybe frustratingly we won't be able to give definitive answers for. But you know, all we could do is point out the kind of anomalous aspects of like the creation of this album. It was released on a very small private label. And yeah. I'm trying to Basically remember. Basically what, what happened was while he was living in Malibu, just kind of gigging around, he was a uh, regular at this one place called The Raft in Malibu, which, as I said, you know, now is called The Real Inn, Fresh mm. uh, Fish Market and Restaurant. 
But, you know, there's a lot of, like, rumors and, and legends around this place itself. Like, uh, even on their own website, they have a little section about the history, which is very odd in general. This is uh, their little passage about the raft from the Real in Malibu website. Somebody once said, history is a consensus hallucination. They were probably referring to the history of the real inn. This is a fresh fish market and restaurant. Anyway, okay. uh, while we know that the building has existed in its current location since 1947, eh, something else important happened that year. Uh, as evidence uh. in the photograph at right, the rest of the history has been passed down through former employees, mostly bartenders like Ralph O'Hara. Current owner Andy Leonard interviewed O'Hara by phone back in 2001. His first remembered history begins with the restaurant being called Marino's, or The Zoo, back in the 1950s. It was then a Mexican restaurant owned by a gay couple. Enter one 6'3", 430-pound retired wrestler from the East Coast who went by the name Fat Jack McGurk by night and Fat Jack Borfona at his day job. O'Hara described how he heard that McGurk muscled a couple of Marinos and became their partner in the aptly named El Gordo's. Uh, in 1962. When the couple <laughs> finally cut and ran, Fat Jack changed the name to The Raft in 1964 and hired O'Hara as a bartender. Fat Jack was later killed at Big Rock. In 1967, the restaurant was sold to Jim McDonald and renamed The Raft until it closed in 1977. Uh, McDonald then opened the Sandcastle at Paradise Cove. O'Hara had many stories of Hollywood's young guns who frequented The Raft. Lee Marvin in particular, you know, uh, who you mm -hmm. mentioned. Uh, yeah. But this is an interesting part. The great fire that everyone cites as the end of the raft slash reel in August 1978 that burned the building to the ground was actually outside and only damaged a dance floor, a shed, and a bar for a total of $3,000 in damage and a Honda motorcycle worth $500. There was no damage to the building at all. Uh, so it's interesting that there was, like, I don't know, a mysterious fire that, like, caused this place to shut down, but it actually didn't damage anything, allegedly, uh, that happened, like, a little bit after this guy's disappearance, uh, the place yeah. where, you know, it's so deeply associated with him, because apparently it was, like, the crowd of regulars uh, there, you know, which included, like, Lee Marvin, you know, Harry D. Stanton, all these people, mm -hmm. Farrah Fawcett, mm -hmm. Majors, you know. Yeah, this one dude, Al Dobbs, who I guess was an actor... Um, yeah, I just I was just looking into him a little bit. Not not a yeah. lot of info on him online. No, but he he's found also very enigmatic. But he really believed in Jim Sullivan, uh, the way that Jim Sullivan believed in UFOs. Yeah, so he founded something called Monty Records, which was like a small private label. It sounds like almost largely to release Jim yeah. Sullivan's album. Exactly. And yeah. um, by by the way, I was just looking at the real end. Uh, I've been there. I, I've, wow. I've eaten fish tacos at the real end. It's like, oh my god. Yeah. No, it's a very much like a spot in Mal. It's like an, a very old school, like celebrated spot at, in Malibu that you know is like a bar and sells tacos and Mexican food and shit. But I didn't know about that like deep history of it. And yeah. that Jim Sullivan was like in that very place uh, back in the sixties very intriguing but yeah. yeah i guess yeah al dobbs who is like an actor but i guess also mostly worked as like a cue card holder yeah on like tv shows and stuff um mm -hmm. he yeah he founded this private label but then the thing that was that jumped out at a lot of like real music heads about this strange album is the personnel that he got to play with him on it because yeah. you know uh, wouldn't you know it's like our favorite actual collective band of uh, the 1960s you know probably like probably the true greatest band of the 60s in a way the wrecking crew 
Phil Spector's, you know, ensemble yes, of uh, right. really, really talented, like, session yeah. musicians that played, Jimmy that basically Bond. played the music on Pet Sounds, the Mamas and the Papas, some of the Birds right. early albums, like, all over the place. They were kind yeah, of everything. The and Stone so, Ponies, you know, which used to back up Linda Ronstadt, uh, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so it's kind of like, yeah, so Jim Sullivan got some of the best guys, including Earl Palmer on drums. Uh, Lyle Ritz on bass, Max Bennett on bass, Don Randy on keyboards, and also the producer who also played on the album. I love that this album was literally produced by James Bond. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. AKA Jimmy Jimmy Bond, who was a member yes. of the Wrecking Crew, and you know, uh, basically, yeah, produced a, a number of albums. And James Edward Bond Jr. So he was a who was a graduate of Juilliard and uh, moved to LA in 1959. And as far as I know, uh, was not an uh, intelligence agent uh, of either the British or the Americans, but still an interesting synchronicity given given everything else. Um, he did record uh, Frank Zappa among many many others. Yeah. So this guy Al Dobbs, according to him, you know, he says I would drive down to Malibu every night sit at the bar at the time he was working as yeah as you said a cue card holder he was an actor turned cue card holder basically so he would drive down to malibu every night sit at the bar at the raft and get wasted and listen to jim play i was working at laugh-in at the time and at some point i realized bob ginter was jim's manager we all began hanging out together either at jim and barbara's house or at bob's house we had these wild crazy parties it was like controlled madness, okay? Like you said, the label was originally named Monty after uh, Delaney's daughter, uh, Chad mm. Delaney. That was uh, his frat brother, Al Dobbs' frat brother from the University of Texas, who fronted mm. most of the money for the album. Oh, interesting. Uh, Those yeah. connections always pay off later mm. in life. Yeah, then Dobbs said, you know, as I mentioned before, Jim was very curious about things that were happening, <laughs> period. He was not talking necessarily about flying saucers, but he was a very spiritual guy. We were big fans of Edgar Casey, Barbara explains. All the time we talked about life on other planets. We'd go from Sherman Oaks up to the beach in Malibu and just sit and watch the water and the stars and wonder what it would be like to be up there. So, yeah, eventually I guess she came hmm. to believe that he was up there, like, just, you know, waiting with it. The ETs. Uh, yeah, I mean, some people did think that he was actually abducted by aliens, like people. That yeah, him, well, right? his disappearance is pretty mysterious. He vanished completely. No one, like, there was a body found that people thought was him, but it was confirmed not to be him. You know, the last place he was was some motel where the bed was never slept in. Like, his car was found with his guitar still in it, and all mm-hmm. of his unsold records just sitting there. And, you know, everyone said, like, he would never leave his guitar because, you know, he loved music so much and everything. His 12-string guitar, yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, so it's pretty it's pretty mysterious. There's an article in the, I think, in the New York Times that gives a good account of what exactly happens in terms of this. Unfortunately, it's, like, trying to paywall me, but I think I can. Uh, Let me see it. if I got it. I think I have it up here. Yeah, yeah, Jim Sullivan, a rock and roll mystery that remains stubbornly unsolved. This is, I think, from 2019, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, the first sentence is great. It, it kind of does ring true. Uh, Jim Sullivan was the kind of California character who seemed to have stepped straight out of a Pynchon or DeLillo novel, a six-foot-two singer and songwriter known as Sully with a magnetic personality and a handlebar mustache. His dramatic psych folk songs were spacious, cinematic, 
enigmatic and edged with mystic lonesome brooding. His social circle included actors and Hollywood hangers-on, and he had brushes with fame, including an uncredited part in Easy Rider with his friend, Dennis Hopper. Yeah. On his 1969 debut album, UFO, he sang of beckoning highways, of aliens, of an Arizona ghost town, of a man who looked so natural in death, it was clearly his time to go. Six years later, the 35-year-old Sullivan disappeared in Santa Rosa, New Mexico, on the front seat of his recovered gray VW Bug were his ID, his beloved 12-string Gil guitar, and a box of his two albums, UFO and the 1972 LP, Jim Sullivan. Sullivan, a country blues troubadour with an enigmatic story, has been compared to Nick Drake, Richie Havens, and Graham Parsons. Questions about his vanishing still plague the small town where he was seen last, as well as his family and a small group of loyal enthusiasts. Last month, the record label Light in the Attic reissued a self-titled album along with a new collection of previous unreleased demos titled If Evening Were Dawn that deepened Sullivan's eerie, essential strangeness. So, yeah, I, you know, he, he did disappear. He disappeared in Santa Rosa, New Mexico, uh, I think, uh, off of Route 66, actually. And he was pulled over for driving erratically by the Yeah, cops. driving erratically, but they determined that they were like, he's drunk, uh, but he, he turned out not to be. After he, you know, vanished, like, his wife started to investigate it. I guess Barbara Sullivan uh, is now dead, so she doesn't believe uh, to this day that he uh, was abducted by aliens, but she did un- until her death. Uh, wow. So she took typewritten notes, um, and on March 5th, she got a call from him telling her that he was all right. She had no reason to think otherwise. He'd only left the day before. The conversation continued cryptically. When she pressed for details, he responded, you wouldn't believe if I told you, she wrote. Like, basically, there's actually a picture in the article of her typewritten notes. He called her from Santa Rosa, New Mexico. He said he called to let her know uh, he was all right. And since he had just left the day before, I had no reason to think otherwise. I'm a little startled by his remark. I asked him for his driver's license number for car insurance and asked him where he was. He said Santa Rosa, and I said, where is that? And he said, New Mexico. I'll probably be leaving here tomorrow. I asked why he was waiting, and he said, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. I said, Jim, what's the matter? Is anything wrong? He said, forget it. Just forget I said anything. I'll call you from Nashville. On March 14th, I called the San Diego Police Department to find out the procedure for filing a missing persons report and was told I would have to file it in Los Angeles because that was the last known area he was seen in. On March 17th, Jerry Sullivan called the Santa Rosa Police to find out if Jim might be in jail there. He was told that Jim was picked up on March 5th, taken in and given a sobriety test. The test was okay, and he was released. On March 21st, Mrs. Ann Pacheco from the New Mexico State Police called Jerry to tell him that Jim's car was in an impound and had been since March 8th. The car was found 23 miles from the main road near the Ginetti Ranch. Mrs. Ginetti said she saw a man standing by the car and asked him if he needed any help, and he said no. She radioed her neighbor, Mr. Emil Bigelow, (laughs) uh, Mm. who called the state police. The state police Mm. had Lee Cordova tow the car in as abandoned. So, hmm. yeah, eventually, yeah, like some dude was found. There was an article in the newspaper, possibly Sullivan, but it ended up not being him. Yeah, they did a DNA test and it wasn't yeah. him. Yeah, and yeah. so he did check in. Yeah, he checked into the La Mesa Hotel in Santa Rosa after passing that sobriety test. And, yeah, they said the yeah bed had never been slept in. I guess he, he went, the, apparently he went to the store to buy vodka, yeah. it seems. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, and then it just, you know, somehow his car ends up, what, 25 miles away with all of his stuff in it. And I guess two of his brothers showed up afterwards when investigators failed to turn him up. And they conducted their own search and with other volunteers. And they 
basically, yeah, they, they didn't find anything. And then, okay, the article says various theories began to spread involving the mafia, the police, and extraterrestrials. Barbara Sullivan took solace in the idea that her husband was abducted by aliens. It was easier, perhaps, than some of the alternatives. Quote, my parents weren't addled by any great intake of drugs, but they were very much of their times and believed in reincarnation and astrology, Chris Sullivan said. She was convinced he was up in the stars somewhere waiting for her. And I guess, like, they found 10 years ago the guy at Light in the Attic, Matt Sullivan, no relation, heard a vinyl rip of UFO online on the blog Waxidermy and became, like, obsessed with it. But I guess, you know, tracking down the original version was basically almost impossible. I think they found, like, one pristine copy because it was re-released yeah, on Century which is amazing, City Records. it's really a great album. It's uh, really good. It's yeah. really fucking good. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is haunting, and, um, like, that's when they kind of... This guy, the other Sullivan, and his wife, Jennifer Moss, M-A-A-S, which makes me think of Crying of Lot 49. It's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of a little, little surreal, like, Oedipus Moss. Um, yeah, no relation uh, to Jim Sullivan, uh, the guy who found no, it. No, not Sullivan. at all. Yeah. They're not yeah, there. so it okay, so they they found some they found some random leads, but nothing that really like added up. So yeah, he they, went down they, there, like looked at the public library, like all the records in Santa Rosa, but they were able to find nothing. Yeah, like uh, a, apparently a gas station worker told the police that Jim Sullivan had asked for directions back to California. Yeah, that's okay. Um, yeah. He never officially checked out from that room. Yeah, they, they did a promotion when they released the album in 2010 on Coast to Coast AM, where I guess it yeah. was, like, the most successful promotion, and people went Yeah, because they just had open lines. People were calling in, just saying all sorts of wacky things about what might have happened. And, like, and you know, Dobbs says, uh, his friend Dobbs says at the end of the article, I think he stumbled into something or someone that was unforgiving. It's kind of poetic to picture him still walking out there somewhere. But something happened. <laughs> yeah, something happened. Chilling. Yeah, Ch- very, very chilling. chilling. Yeah, it's extremely yeah. eerie. It's one of those things. Like it's kind of like a you know, as we know from David Polites, people do go missing all the time in mysterious ways. <laughs> but this is a particularly unique case because of the, I mean the the album, which what I think is really intriguing about it is that again, you could say like oh you know well he was like depressed like he fantasized about this he you know wanted to die in some way perhaps uh or wanted to move on but the album does really seem to like uh foretell or prognosticate what happened mm-hmm. yeah like, in yeah, the lyrics, yeah you know i i think uh, so i i really do think so like he was some, i don't know he was calling out to something or noticed something we don't know too much about kind of you know, I think, did we mention yet that his, you know, dad basically worked in the defense industry growing up? He grew up in um, San Diego. Yeah, well, he was one of those people who moved out from Nebraska to California to work in the defense industry, I think, during World War II. Yeah, uh, exactly. Parents. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he grew up in the Linda Vista area of San Diego. Uh, you know, he was Irish American. They moved from Nebraska to work in the defense industry. So I don't know. They don't say kind of what defense industry. It doesn't sound like he was, you know, like his dad was some like big engineer or something. I guess he, according to the self-written liner notes in his first LP, he quote, grew up in a government housing project with a bunch of other Okies and Arkies and decided to play music after listening to local blues groups. So, you know, I think, uh, yeah. So I think he was more just kind of, that was in the background there in Los Angeles, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't know, might have been working at a defense plant, his dad, or something like that. Um, And eventually his wife did work at 
kind of supported both of them by yeah. getting a job as a secretary at Capitol Records. Right. And she kept which, trying to show know, it to people there. Her who boss. was it who she was always showing it to? I forget. Uh, but I guess it was maybe a, just some, her it was some boss. Uh, yeah, no, no, her, her boss was named. I'm uh, trying Jim to see. Jim Hewart, I guess. Uh, no, he was he was no. a musician who played with. Uh, oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Nick Bennett, I guess, was the person who they were endlessly trying to to pitch, but he constantly turned them down. Oh, I think it was actually John Rankin was the executive. Um, or I'm sorry, yeah, it was Barber's boss. So his wife's boss, who she worked for at Capitol, he tried to get the upper executives at the label to notice Sullivan's music, but he said they weren't interested at the time, and I didn't have any great position there, uh, but I believed in Jim. Okay, so maybe the other guy, Bennett, you talked about. Um, yeah, Nick was Bennett. The he was like uh, Nicolas Constantinos Venetoulis, uh, his real name. He was like the Wait, point really? person. Yeah, uh, he was the point person at Capitol for folk rock music. Uh, but Interesting. when they managed Wait, to get okay. a meeting with him, he turned them down. Yeah. I w- yeah, I think somebody said that Brian they... Wilson credited Bennett with learning the craft of production. Uh, he produced Surf and wow. Safari. Surf and Safari. Oh, yeah. really? Wow. Yeah. Okay, wait, wait. I, I'm looking for his... Uh, I'm Googling him right now. It's Bennett, B-E-N-N-E-T-T? Uh, Bennett. Uh, yeah, Venetoulis. Uh, Nick Oh, Bennett. Yeah. Uh, how do you spell it? B-E-N-E-T. Oh, Nick Bennett. Wow, uh, Nick Bennett. I had no idea. Um, 1936... Yeah, wow. Um, but he was con- Nicolas Constantinos. Was he born in America? Um, I guess he was, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know much about him except for being the folk rock point person at Capitol during that time. I mean, there's kind of like literally no information about him before he, he was born like, in Baltimore. Uh, he began his oh, career okay. at 17 as a writer in New York's famed Brill Building Pop Song Factory. Hmm. He moved to Los Angeles at 19, and uh, he worked with monologist Lord Buckley. Then he became a staff producer and talent scout at Capitol. And then he came in contact with the Beach Boys through Murray Wilson, who was managing the band, uh, etc. And the wow. rest is history. He, yeah. he was really, yeah, everybody from Frank Zappa to like Linda Ronstadt, Bobby Darin. Yeah, pretty Fred much. Fred Neal. Yeah, pretty much. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, he was Robbie, not Robbie Shankar mm, in this Robbie album. Shankar, <laughs> he did not want to uh, produce uh, Jim Sullivan. And I guess I understand. I mean, like he's not really like he doesn't really have like the same sort of star power. I guess maybe as the Beach Boys. You know, he's like this big dude, like this big weird dude with a handlebar mustache. He's kind of so. like singing these. But isn't songs, also like, isn't David Crosby also like this big? Yeah, but he's part of the band, you know, Crosby, yeah, Stills, you know. Nash, like, it's a whole thing. I feel like they have more of a an image. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, a, a Jack Nietzsche, that guy. Um, remember we mentioned him? Yeah. In the right-hand man of Phil Spector. Uh, Don McLean, American Pie, you know, he produced that record. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Oh, he, he, did, uh, he did produce Bernie Leadon when he was in Hearts and Flowers. So, wow. slight... Eagles connection. So yeah, I mean, they didn't really want to fuck with him. It does. It does make me think that like if you brought in Charles Manson in 1969 <laughs> and you put him with the Wrecking Crew, it probably would have been like a decent record. Well, yeah, I'm I guess saying. if you put him with the Wrecking Crew, it might have been a good album. But I don't know. I think that there's something to Jim Sullivan's like uh, talent. I think that he does have yes. maybe. I mean, maybe you could say maybe someone say that about Manson. I've always been very unimpressed with his 
music. I know, I think we've had this conversation before about whether, like, he was a good musician. But, I mean, I'm looking at, like, a picture of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young from the 70s. I just feel like they have a completely different type of vibe from Jim Sullivan. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, you know. Yeah, true. They're... And, you know, he's not a, he's also not a Van Cortland. He He's not yeah, the descendant true. of a patroon, so that also, you know, that's right, a, a exactly. mark against him, I guess. He's not from a patroon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, they're young, like, they have that kind of uh, Eagles vibe. Like, I don't know, he just seems, like, weathered, like, even in the picture for his second self-titled album after UFO. You know, you'd think that you'd try to make this as appealing looking as possible. It was produced by Playboy Records when they were trying to branch out into making music, which is another uh-huh. thing in and of itself, like, very odd. It definitely is. But, yeah, like, it's definitely not the same image as, like, a, you know, a contemporaneous... Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Type yeah, of like, like yeah. I'm looking, at, I'm looking at him in a picture of the early '70s with his family, like when he was probably around like the age I am now, and it reminds me of that that like meme that's going around about like the guy from Cheers who looks like 50, but he was <laughs> supposed to be in his early 30s, like the yeah. curly hair guy, you know? And it's like this is what like a 34 year old looked like in 1980 in 1987, and yeah. it's kind of like what the fuck? Like people, I, mean, I guess if you were hard living, UFO, it's like very. Yeah. Odd. <laughs> You know, it's like him, like, is looking up, like, with his mouth, like, gaping open, like, and it's, like, refracted in, like, an insect eye type he's, way. He does, he already looks, like, 40 in, yeah. like, that. He's probably <laughs> in his late 20s when that album came out. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a very, a kind of haunting and strange uh, <laughs> yes. cover. Like, he's looking up at the UFO, and he's, like, he's Gary Sinise in, yeah, you know, Yeah, I mean, if you compare this cover room. to the cover of, like, you know, the first Eagles album, it's it's different. <laughs> like, it's a different It is different. Though, actually, yeah. I mean, the first Eagles album is a little bit, like, it's a little eerie um, at sunset with, like, the eagle up there. But still, you know, a little more. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no. I mean, definitely like, Crosby, Stills, yeah. Nash, and Young. Like, the vibe absolutely is uh, a lot darker than that. And... Yeah, I guess uh, I don't know. Yeah, it is weird though. Like, who gets picked, who who doesn't? Because mm-hmm. this is a pretty great record. They did re-release it on something called Century City Records, I think, in the early '70s. But then they remixed it, and I don't know. One of the things that really jumps out is the drum work on the album, which is like very mixed. La- it's mixed very loudly and like up front. And mm-hmm. that was the drummer. Um, I'm forgetting his name right now, but one of the very like prominent. Wrecking Crew drummers mm. uh, yeah. was, you know, really laid down. And then so when they re-released it on Century City, they kind of, like, toned it down a lot. Yeah, it was Earl Palmer. Mm-hmm. And, oh, yeah, also also Jimmy Bond, it should be mentioned, uh, Jimmy Bond and Earl Palmer were black, so, like, he's definitely not, like, a British spy, probably. Um, <laughs> so I guess, so when they tried to re-release it, they almost couldn't find the original, you know, limited release uh, that you know, his friend Al Dobbs did on Monty. So they they got really lucky, but otherwise you would have been kind of like stuck with this one version of it that I guess doesn't have quite have the same haunting impact. So, you know, production matters, especially in like a weird record like this. And, yeah. you know, it, it just has and a I very mean, specific... Kinda, I feel like maybe in a way, like a lot of the songs on UFO have like a similar type of vibe to like Hotel California almost but mm-hmm. I mean Hotel California is a very abstract song lyrically but I almost feel like I don't know it's even harder to pin down on UFO there's uh, like it's even more esoteric I mean especially with like the themes of 
actual like outer space contact or you know extraterrestrial communication or interdimensional uh, <laughs> interface. It's you know even stranger and it's even more like kind of off-putting. And also he didn't have the cachet that the Eagles had already built up as a platform for that. Yeah. If you put this uh, album on, if you put UFO on, the first song is Jerome, which mm-hmm. I think is like my favorite song on the album, which is, I feel like it's a very deep song, yes, and it does start off like in a very, even if you listen to his demo of it, it still has a haunting quality, but you it, know, does. it starts off with those very you know, ominous kind of strings, which I guess is one of the Wrecking Crew uh, members contributed that. I think um, Jimmy Bond uh, yeah, did I guess the it was string Jimmy arrangements Bond himself. for it. Yeah. For access to the full-length episode, subscribe to the Hour of Frequency at patreon.com slash subliminal jihad. And I found a magic man I bought a pound of magic and I kind of dream and plan where you lay your hand I found a magic man at your own Where is there I want to go Where is where it's at your own Is it a place out there Just a town down there If you're driving slow Where is where it's at 